Hello and welcome to the Alone Together podcast. I'm Morvan McIntyre speaking to you from Edinburgh. And I'm Matt Millard speaking to you from Birmingham. In this series of Alone Together, we take a closer look at the so-called new normal in life after lockdown. We also pay tribute to the amazing people from across the UK who have been doing their part to keep local communities going throughout the pandemic, along with answering your pressing questions about coronavirus and its wider effects on our societies. Coming off on today's episode, we explore the ways we've had to adapt to coronavirus in order to stay safe, and if it's helped or hindered our progress to live more sustainably. Are we still on track in the UK for a carbon neutral future? Join us as we speak to the experts to find out just that. I chat to environmental journalist and author, Beth Gardner, about the lessons that can be learned from the COVID-19 outbreak to ensure we don't take a step backwards when it comes to carbon emissions. Actually, that this is a problem that is, is really fixable. It is not beyond our sort of abilities, nor is climate change, of course, but and they are they are very much interrelated. But you know, I think we need to remember that that these problems are fixable if we if we make the choices and, and we press our governments to actually take the action that will, you know, bring that about. And I speak to transport expert Tom Millard a senior consultant and lead for economics at PJA, an integrated transport engineering and placemaking consultancy based in Birmingham. He tells me how the pandemic has impacted the way we travel and what positive things are now being done to help try and reduce the environmental impact of our new, more socially distanced journeys. Transportation plays a key part in this climate emergency that we now find ourselves in. And reducing car use is fundamental to reducing the the negative impacts of transport on our environment. Gear change is a a policy which is launched by the the Prime Minister. And as we know, um, Boris is extremely keen on cycling, particularly from his his time when he was Mayor of London. So he's really behind this. And and it it sets out the vision that will enable a greater participation in what we call active travel, so cycling and walking. Beth Gardner is an American environmental journalist who's written for publications such as The Guardian, The New York Times, and The National Geographic. Based in London, she is known for her best-selling book, Choked the Age of Air Pollution and the Fight for a Cleaner Future. She spoke to me about the global issues of air pollution and how governments and organizations should use the COVID-19 pandemic as an opportunity to change their ways, rather than continue with poor environmental choices. Uh, So hi, Beth. Tell us a bit about Hi. yourself and uh, the work you've done around environmental issues uh, pre-COVID. Sure. So I, I'm an environmental journalist um, based in London. I'm an American, but I've lived here in the UK for about 20 years. Um, and in some ways, the, the book choked about air pollution kind of sprang out, out of my experience as a Londoner. Um, my experience of air pollution. I mean, this is obviously a city that's historically been you know, known for its poor air quality back in the days of, of the pea soup fogs, the bad old days in, in the 50s and the 60s. Um, but, you know, I think a lot of us sort of thought that that was in the past. And what I noticed when I first moved here um, in the, the very early 2000s from New York was that, um, you know, I just kind of felt like every time I walked outside or walked down a, a busy road or even a not so busy road, I would just kind of notice this um, this taste in the air and this kind of thickness and and a smell, almost a taste of of exhaust. And um, 
was something I hadn't really experienced in New York, which is obviously not, you know, a sort of some rural idyllic place that I had come from. But it didn't seem to be something that people really, you know, talked very much about or that was on the radar screen at all. This is, you know, going back almost 20 years now. Um, so I kind of pushed it to the back of my mind and, um, you know, been been working on all kinds of other stories. And I've been pretty exclusively focused on environment for the last 10 years or so. Um, and I started to, to um, I guess, really focus again on the air quality issue um, back in around 2012 when I was working on a story to do with the um, Olympics that, that were coming to London at that time. What I learned and what you would learn if you start Googling that really shocked me um, because what I found was that air pollution is killing millions of people around the world every year, um, 50,000 annually in the UK, more than 9,000 in London alone, um, and that it's linked to a huge variety of health problems, not just, you know, sort of asthma and breathing issues as I might have anticipated. And I think, you know, most of us wouldn't be surprised by, but also dirty air, I discovered is linked to higher rates of, you know, heart attacks and strokes and many kinds of cancer and diabetes and dementia and Parkinson's and uh, premature birth and infertility. And the list just goes on and on and on. So, you know, I guess what I obviously found that upsetting as a, an individual, but it also um, really as a, as a journalist kind of struck me as, you know, wow, this is a huge story. And how come, I, you know, we're not hearing more about this? Why isn't this on the front pages every day? if it's having such huge impacts on the health of people all, all over the country and, and really the world. So that was kind of how I got interested in it and started looking for ways to make this story accessible and interesting to readers. And, uh, you know, I ended up kind of really traveling around the world to, um, to China and India, back home to the U.S., um, to Poland, hugely coal-dependent um, country. Um, and did plenty of reporting right here in the UK too. Um, and, um, you know, the book came out about a year ago. And now, obviously, what we're seeing is that, that this air pollution story is, is really intersecting in a very profound way with the, uh, the COVID crisis that we find ourselves in. Uh, that's something that's been on a lot of people's minds at the moment is, has COVID made things better or worse? Because on the one hand, we're commuting less and we're, you know, generally traveling less and um, not a lot of people will be going on holiday this year and all those sorts of things but we are moving towards using you know single plastic again with non-reusable masks um, and we're being told to avoid public transport and, and take cars to work and things like that if we have to go in. So has there been any research around COVID's impact on the environment? Yeah so this is a really interesting question and I think it was in the forefront of a lot of people's minds as as the lockdowns began back in, in March. And I mean, I can't even count the number of people who said to me or emailed me and said, oh, you know, this pandemic is so horrible. The lockdowns are terrible. But, you know, at least it's good for the environment. Um, you know, the air is cleaner. I can hear the birds singing when I walk down the street in London or whatever. And, um, you know, wow, that was just driving me crazy. I, I found it so frustrating to hear people saying that this idea that, you know, this horrendous situation that we find ourselves in, like, 
oh, well, at least, you know, it's good for, for the, the natural world, for the environment. Um, because I really didn't see it that way at all. I mean, obviously, during the lockdowns, when we were all basically pretty much confined to our homes and no one was going anywhere. Yeah, sure. You know, there's no cars on the road. So of course the air is cleaner. And, you know, I took some bike rides into to the center of London on roads I would never normally consider cycling on. And they were empty and quiet and the air was really clean. But it, it was just very obvious from the beginning that this is a completely temporary situation. And as soon as lockdowns end and people get back on the road and go back to, you know, factories reopen and all that, all these other sources of pollution, that we're going to be exactly back where we started. You know, I think it also sort of seemed to underline to me this, this notion that, you know, there's no way we possibly could have fixed these things without, you know, totally closing the world down. Um, you know, shutting down in the face of this this tragic situation. And that's really not true. I mean, we we learned a lot, I think, from that experience in some ways. And and um, you know, I think there there were many people who who sort of felt like, okay, well, you know, we did get cleaner air. Is there a way that we can make that last? And I think, you know, what it highlights is that this totally fossil fuel dependent economy and world that we have built, you know, if you build less fossil fuel, uh, if you burn less fossil fuels, you will have less pollution. I mean, that is something that, you know, scientists certainly knew, and I think would have been pretty clear if you had thought about it before. But nonetheless, there is something very powerful, I think, about actually millions of people having that experience and realizing, sure, we need to find ways to get around, but we don't have to let cars totally dominate our cities. And in fact, you know, now that we experience something different, we can see what the benefits would be of having cities that are more open to walking, to cycling, to other forms of transportation. So what we need to start thinking about now is, are there ways to do that sustainably? Are there ways to do it that don't involve, you know, shutting down the economy and, and, you know, living in fear. So, you know, and that, that obviously comes down to sort of cleaner forms of energy, less pollution and less carbon. If you, if you use, um, you know, solar power, wind power, hydroelectricity, all these things and better ways of getting around cities, you know, are there, is there, are there ways of prioritizing pedestrians and cyclists and improving our public transport so we don't have to drive these polluting cars around all the time. So I think the big questions are going to be, you know, what we take away from it. Do you have any sort of findings on what the long-term impacts of COVID will be on climate change? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think what we saw was a very, uh, a pretty sharp dip in carbon emissions, but it's gone already. Um, You know, people are, are back in their cars now, they're moving around again. And, and what I worry about, and I think what I feared was being obscured by all this talk about, you know, COVID is, quotes good for the environment, is that I do think we are very much at risk of a dirty recovery. I think we're really at a, you know, sort of a, a, a fork in the road and a question of whether we are going to use this moment to sort of double down on the dirty economy, the fossil fuel economy that we know has has put us on the precipice of you know, climate catastrophe, and which I also learned in reporting my book is is making people 
sick very much in the here and now from, you know, the pollution that we're breathing in, in the air that comes from those very same fossil fuels. So are we going to double down on that or are we going to use that money, which governments are, are spending anyway to restart the economy to build something better, you know, a, a, a green stimulus is the, the phrase that gets used. So I guess for people listening, um, you know, what action needs to be taken by the government to ensure that air pollution gets, gets better? And- sure. So one, one of the biggest issues that I came to understand in reporting my book at the, and, and that really is at the root of a lot of the air pollution problem across the UK in Euro- and Europe is a huge regulatory failure that we saw um, sort of spill out into public view four years ago now when the diesel cheating scandal became public. And what we learned when that scandal came to light was that these manufacturers were making and selling cars that were emitting not a little bit over the legal limit, but 8, 10, 12 times more nitrogen dioxide than they are legally allowed to. So that happened four years ago. Today, there are still 50 million cars on the roads across Europe. Eight million of them are here in the UK that are emitting three or more times the legal limit of nitrogen dioxide. This is a source of our pollution, a a large part of our pollution crisis in Britain right now on on the roads of our cities and towns. the, the companies are still selling, incredibly today, they are still selling cars that are violating the legal limits. And all these many millions of cars sold in the past are still on our roads. So to me, one of the biggest things that the government needs to do is to deal with that legacy of Dieselgate that is still killing so many Brits and Europeans today. A lot of our sort of public conversation and public understanding, I think, of environmental problems, whether it's air pollution or climate change, a lot of the public conversation ends up sort of focusing on personal responsibility and individual choice. You know, are you driving the right kind of car or, you know, are you cycling instead or, you know, what kinds of choices are you making around flying or being vegan or whatever? But I I think that that is such a distraction from the big picture, which to me is about corporate and government responsibility, because that is really where this crisis originates and it's where it's going to be solved. So, you know, I just told you about the the failure of enforcement around diesel vehicles as a huge contributor to our current pollution crisis. And obviously, that's just one example. You know, we you asked about government action. We also obviously need a huge and aggressive push around clean energy, shifting us away from gas and oil towards wind, solar, and other pollution-free and low-pollution forms of electricity. We need you know, a huge, huge investment in better forms of transportation, more effective and, and comfortable and accessible and affordable public transportation, you know, cycling that doesn't make you feel terrified to get, get on, the, on the road as I am to you know, ride around London. So it's a huge range of things, but it, it basically needs you know, real serious government action and intention and money. And um, I guess the other thing is that, you know, I think we do tend to sometimes sort of silo off this idea of sort of, quote, environment as being separate for everything else. Is this good for the environment? Is it bad for the environment? To me, you know, the reason why I spent 
several years of my life reporting on air pollution and, and researching this book. It, to me, air pollution is actually not a, quote, environment issue. This is a health issue. It's an issue of human well-being. It's an issue of, you know, protecting our, our children and our parents and ourselves and our, our communities for the future. And, you know, uh, climate change oftentimes I think can feel like this incredibly overwhelming and daunting challenge. And, you know, how do we really take that on? But air pollution in, in some ways is, is more manageable because, you know, every increment of improvement, every, um, you know, better regulation or, um, you know, company that follows the rules that reduces the pollution in the air we breathe, literally that is, you know, preventing heart attacks tomorrow. It's saving people's lives almost right away. So it, to me, it's sort of a more optimistic um, way of looking at it, actually, that this is a problem that is is really fixable. It is not beyond our sort of abilities, nor is climate change, of course, but and they are they are very much interrelated. But you know, I think we need to remember that that these problems are fixable if we if we make the choices and, and we press our governments to actually take the action that will you know bring that about. That was my chat with environmental journalist Beth Gardner. It's clear to hear there that our planet faces many issues when it comes to air pollution. Governments and global organizations must come out of the other side of this pandemic with a cleaner future in mind and avoiding a dirty recovery for health and well-being. Beth Gardner asked the question there, what are we doing to make sure cities are more open to cleaner ways of travel, such as walking and cycling? And what can we do to avoid driving our polluting cars? Well, our next guest will answer just that. Yes, indeed. So what are we doing here in the UK to ensure our socially distanced travel decisions don't affect the environment in a negative way? Our next guest is Tom Millard. And yes, you did guess correct. He is a relation of mine. He's actually my twin brother. Uh, Tom is a senior consultant and lead for economics at PJA, an integrated transport, engineering and placemaking consultancy, which has its headquarters in Birmingham, as well as other offices in London, Manchester, Bristol and Reading. PJA has supported a wide range of private and public sector clients to deliver development and infrastructure projects across the UK and overseas. They also recently advised on the new Gear Change initiative launched by the Prime Minister, which sets out the vision that will enable active travel such as cycling and walking. Tom joined me this week and helped shed some light on how the coronavirus outbreak has changed the way we travel here in the UK, what the risks are if we all jump back into our cars to avoid public transport, and what positive things are now being done to help try and reduce the environmental impact of our new, more socially distanced journeys. So hi, Tom. Thanks for coming on to the show. Hi, Matt. Thanks for having me on. Right. As we know, the coronavirus outbreak saw the UK government advising the public to steer clear of trains and buses and only use public transport where absolutely necessary as an attempt to reduce the grouping of people in confined spaces and ultimately slow the spread of the virus. So how did this initial advice affect the use of public transport services? So completely as you'd expect, really, Matt, the, uh, the, the usage of public transport dropped off pretty dramatically straight away. And in early April, which I think when the lockdown was in full force, the use of the rail and the tube, for example, dropped to 5% of, of pre-COVID-19 levels. Um, with the bus, it was pretty similar as well. Uh, usage dropped to around 20% inside London, around 10% outside of London. So massive reductions in the amount of public transport mm -hmm. being used. 
But it's the same for all modes of transport, really, apart from cycling. So car use fell to just under 35% of pre-COVID levels. Um, it's meant that I think travel overall fell, but public transport was really the, the, the most severe drop-off, as, as we'd completely expect from the advice issued by the government at that time. So are we seeing transport usage rise again now, or, or are people still you know, wary and steering clear of public transport? I mean, I've seen numerous uh, advertisements um, on social media for train companies recently encouraging us to, to step back aboard. Although I must admit, when I've used trains recently in Birmingham, the carriages have been largely empty. And, and also, you know, seeing buses go, going past, you know, even in the city centre, a lot of them are empty with just the driver on board. Yeah, I, I completely relate to that. Those are my own experiences as well. And, and, and the date, the DFC data on the public transport usage is, is certainly showing that as well. Um, so rail and tube usage, whilst it's, it's, it's gone up a fair bit since, um, since earlier in the year, we're still only around 30% of, of pre-COVID levels. With the buses a bit higher, so in, in London they're up to about 50%, and outside London it's around 40%. But, but that is still a massive reduction in what we were seeing the usage of public transport being before the, the pandemic took place. I guess there's a, there's a balance in that here, really, between safety and what people feel comfortable doing, because individuals want to reduce the risk as much as they can of uh, getting or, or transmitting this disease amongst other people. But sometimes there's, that's got to be balanced against the necessity as well. Some people don't have the choices to be able to use the car or or not to travel in a key workers, for example, working in city centres, that may only, have, may only be able to, to use public transport to get to where they need to go. Um, but there's a, there's a real issue here with, with the commercial viability of, of these services. So you know, public transport companies, particularly, particularly buses, they're they were really struggling beforehand with, with declining patronage that had lasted uh, many years. So we've now this massive drop off in, in people actually using the services. They're having to rely on government support packages to kind of um, fill that gap and make sure that these services stay stay running and stay viable for, for, for key workers to use. Um, so yeah, how long that can continue for is going to it's going it's going to be interesting, really. I mean, one thing I would say is you know, we've both got trains recently and. The um, the experiences that we have had on on public transport have been a positive one. There's there's been a member of staff checking to make sure that you know people are wearing masks before they get onto the carriages. And then when you're actually on the the you know, trains, for example, when when we've got trains, you know there is you know a lot less people on there, which you know is obviously bad for the for the train companies, but good for us as members of the public it means that we're not crowded into these carriages. Well, yeah, and you, you think, but then you think back to what it was like before. Before this year, and at peak times in particular, you'd have train services going in the city centre that were completely full, and you'd have park and rides that would be filling up by sometimes seven o'clock in the morning, just just really, really busy. And I felt that there was almost like a, a pent up demand for public transport, um, mm -hmm. or particularly rail anyway, um, which meant that if if you're able to increase the capacity of the trains, if you're able to increase the frequency of services, increase park and rides, you probably would have had more people that would have been willing to use the trains. Um, than than what they were able to do. So this is just a major major change, really, as, as people act in their own interest to to reduce the um, to reduce the spread of this of, of this deadly virus. This kind of leads me on to my next question here. You know, if if many of us do opt now to use cars to get to work as offices reopen, are we going to see more congestion on the roads? Um, during rush hours as opposed to on public transport? Or do you think the increase in people working from home has helped to somewhat balance this out? 
Yeah, I think it, it's, it's been a sort of mixture of the two, really. So, so far, again, looking at the, the DFT statistics on on transport usage, um, we've seen that car use now is back up to around 90% of, of pre-COVID levels. So, we're almost right up there, really. But it's it's not quite as congested, certainly at the peak times. Um, like it's travelling at peak times, it's, it's not taking as long as what it, what it would have done beforehand. And I think there's a bit of what we call in the industry peak spreading, which means that people don't always travel in that kind of... Um, you know, eight till nine or, or or five till six sort of period. So that's the, the demand's been spread out more evenly across the day, which which is which is typically seen as, as a good thing. But if people are going to be traveling more now, if more people are going to start going back to work rather than working from home, which is a, a, a big if, um, and people aren't going to be as comfortable using public transport as they would have been previously, then we're going to get this substitution effect where more people are going to be potentially could be traveling in the car. So we that's a situation we don't really want to see happen because no one wants no one wants to have overly congested road. It's not it's not good for it's not good for our for our, for our lives. It's not good for our environment. So so it's about get, trying to get that balance right. And, and I think that the, the more fundamental level is has this has this sort of pandemic changed people's overall need for travel. So if, when we think about the demand for travel, there's there's obviously how we travel, there's there's where we travel, why we travel, but there's also do we even need to travel. In the first place, and uh, and I, I think that the, the particular the, the technology that's been around that's enabled people, people to work from home a lot easier than before, and um, people have just got, got used to it. And uh, will that have longer term implications for, for for people's need to travel, which might balance out the fact that people are, are, are at the moment anyway, until we get a vaccine, aren't probably going to be using public transport as much as they as they otherwise would be. So, if we do see this this increased use of cars, I mean. For instance, during the summer holidays, um, motorways seem to be more congested than ever with, with, with families travelling uh, down south. So with many members of the public steering clear of public transport, is there a risk of us taking a backward step when it comes to, to emissions? Yes, I think that is a, a real risk and it's a real challenge that we now potentially face. As we know, transportation plays a key part in this climate emergency that we now find ourselves in. And reducing car use is fundamental to reducing the, the negative impacts of transport on our environment. But it's not just about the emissions, really, Matt. It, 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 it's about the, the, the space on the road that, that vehicles take up, particularly at, at busier times as we're traveling to and from work. If you've just got one person sat in one vehicle, that's quite inefficient. And, it's always, and at the end of the journey, they need to park that vehicle as well, which, which, which takes up valuable real estate. So if we all did that to get around, we suddenly find ourselves ex- extremely congested. Whereas other modes of transport, so walking and cycling, obviously social distancing has a, has a slight impact on that. But um, in, in theory, they take up less, less space. But then the, by far and away, the most efficient um, is mass transportation. So this idea that people are going to be moving around in, in, in public transport, um, and, and that that is by far and away the, the the most efficient way of moving large volumes of people around. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the only real way that we can that we can significantly reduce congestion in our in our major towns and cities. Um, and that's why a lot of investment beforehand was going in and still is going into um, schemes such as high speed rail, uh, metro systems in major cities, uh, cross rail. Because this is if you're trying to move people around, like it's just it's just the most efficient way of doing it um so if we were to sort of move away from that uh, or if we force move away from that it, it's going to present challenges of course 
it is exactly that, Tom. If if a large amount of people do return to offices, and, and especially during those rush hour times, um, you know, we can't all simply hop into the car because there'd just be an overflow of, of cars and we wouldn't get anywhere. You'd be in standstill traffic for hours, wouldn't you? You know, opting for these these modes of transport which take up less room, such as cycling and walking, are, are, are obviously a preferred method for us to, to look at. Something that's always surprised me, and I know that we've we've talked about this often, is is uh, f- for the listeners. Me and Tom are both uh, keen motorcycle uh, riders, and we can never really understand why why that's not encouraged as well as 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 a means of of transportation, especially for commuting. You occupy far less of the road, uh, you know, burn less fuel, easier to park when you get to the destination, and so on. I, I mean, the only thing we can come to think of is obviously the. That there are risks and dangers which are associated with motorcycling. Yeah, of course. But you, you, you can, as we both know, you can do everything you can to to mitigate those risks, can't you? So there you go. There's there's something from us to government, if if anyone is listening. Now the government has recently launched its gear change vision for cycling and walking, reinforced by new cycling design guidance, which you guys at PJA advised on. Could you talk us through what the, the scheme involves and, and what it aims to achieve? Yes, of course. So, so Gear Change is a, it's a policy which is launched by the, the Prime Minister. And as we know, um, Boris is extremely keen on cycling, particularly from his, from his time when he was Mayor of London. So he's really behind this. And, and, it, and it sets out the vision that will sort of enable a greater participation in what we call active travel, so cycling and walking. And I say enable... Because you know how many people will, will tell you that you know, oh they would love to cycle although I would be so I'd be willing to cycle but I just don't feel safe on the roads or I just I don't want to get knocked off or there isn't suitable cycle lanes for, for me to use um, and as we know motorists often get frustrated with with, with cyclists ruining their progress um, so it's it, not providing sufficiently for cyclists is sort of suboptimal for everybody really so by better catering for um, active travel users, we'll be able to enable people to make that choice um, p- quite positively and have to have no real barriers in the way to, to using um, active travel. Why do we want to do that? Well, as we know, the, the the benefits from moving away from particularly single occupancy car use, what we call mode shift to other modes, but it moving to, to cycling, um, that was going to address some of the problems that we associate with excessive car use, such as congestion, such as pollution, et cetera, et cetera, we know about. It's also really good from a health perspective as well, taking part in regular physical activity, as, as you know, we both like to do. It is really good for, for one's health, both in the, in the short and long term. It can make them live longer. And at the moment where we where this country does face, like many Western countries face a serious obesity crisis, taking part in regular physical activity, such as cycling, is going to help address that. Much of the work I do is to do making the business case for um, cycling infrastructure and um, they're, they're predominantly propped up by the massive health benefits which we expect to, to, to yield from mm-hmm. increasing in, in, in cycling participation. But it's also to help capitalise on this massive increase in active travel that we've seen during, during the last few months. In those sort of early, time, early few months of the pandemic, people were going out in, in spades on their bicycles, you know, dusting off the lycra and, 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 getting it and giving it a go, and that's fantastic. So with all this newfound enthusiasm for cycling, now I myself was actually one of these people, how can we sort of lock that in so it's not just waste and people just don't reverse back to um, what we you know what we might think is undesirable travel behaviour? So to 
So to kind of to, to record that, this 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 policy comes with two billion pounds worth of new funding that's going to be used to to um, implement targeted active travel measures. You know, pieces of infrastructure which are going to which are going to make it far easier to to um, to, to take part in, in cycling in our in our towns and cities. But perhaps more fundamentally than that, the government is establishing a new body called Active Travel England, and that's going to enforce um, the sort of the adequate provision of cycling infrastructure, not just on new active travel schemes, but on all highway interventions, just to make sure that, that cyclists have been properly catered for. And they'll actually have the power to withhold government funding from schemes that are suboptimal or, or not, not sufficient to, to, to cater for, for, um, for, for cycling um, sufficiently. And underpinning this, this, this fantastic vision, this, this policy launched by the Prime Minister, um, is this new cycle design guidance for infrastructure, um, which which we, we we played a part in um, in, in in developing. I'm not going to go into massive amounts of detail, but but the sort of key principles are that cycling infrastructure should be accessible to everybody. It's not, it's not just for you know the the, the lycra types, the keen cyclists that go out and ride 80 miles on a weekend. Um, it should be accessible to anybody from all, all ages, from eight to 80, all physical abilities. Um, or disabilities, you know, we should be able to, to to ensure people are safe and and comfortable using this infrastructure. We should also not negatively affect pedestrians as we try and cater for cyclists. So you'll see um, you know, all across the country, there's quite a lot of these um, shared footway cycleways where pedestrians and cyclists have to share the same bit of pavement, basically. And whilst that 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 can be fine in some instances, but in busy areas, it can just you just sort of facilities that a cyclist just wouldn't want to use because it's you, you run the risk of running into pedestrians. It's not nice for anybody. So that sort of design is seen is seen as um, very undesirable, really, and should be avoided where possible, particularly in sort of high um, high flow areas. Um, and the same goes for se- trying to separate or physically physically protect cyclists from from vehicles as well. Both both. At junctions, but also on the on the, the sort of the, the stretches of road between them as well, just so, just so people feel nice and safe that they're not going to have a car, you know, run into them, run into their lane, and knock them off. There's also other other interventions we, we can look at besides cycle, you know, bespoke um, standalone cycle lanes or you know, cycle routes. We can also have where we've got sort of closed side roads where we don't want to have vehicles, you know, rat running through them. We can allow cyclists to, to use those sort of quiet routes and, and still and still get through sort of these sort of tra- you know light traffic and traffic free routes which which is which is a, a better alternative to using a main road and cheaper than building a new a new piece of cycling infrastructure on a, on a main road as we want to encourage the use of, of of cycling the uptake of cycling we need to make sure that the facilities are capable of, of accommodating lots of people and if you look at some of the some of the european um, some of the European cities like Amsterdam or Copenhagen, you'll see, you'll see you know, lots of people are cycling. You know, we, we might get to that sort of levels in the in the UK one day. You know, that, mm-hmm. that would be great in in some of our major cities. So we need to make sure there's, in, there's physically enough room for people to to actually um, to, to to share the facilities without sort of running into the carriageway. And and of course, the, it's all got to be legible, consistent, easy to follow, well maintained. If they're not, people just won't use them, and that just frustrates everybody. And you should be able to to park your bike at the other end as well, you know, with, with sufficient cycle parking and the cycle facilities, etc. Um, so it's not too much of a too much of a stress. So it's great, like you say, we've many of us have 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 looked to to cycling during, uh, especially during lockdown, as means of exercise and getting out and enjoying ourselves. I know that that we both have during this time, and 
it's getting that mentality of of you know we can also use these push bikes as a means of transport getting ourselves to and from work or, or to and from our destination that we need to get to sounds like there's a lot of thought going in here to how to make it not only accessible but also safe and a a positive thing that people will will want to be involved in yes absolutely and, and these are this is an issue which the the, the the sort of transport planning sector has been has been pushing for for a long time now, and um, you know, the government has encouraged or has adopted design guidance in the past. We, we, we've we've had cycling walking infrastructure plans, which which um, we and other consultants help local authorities develop. Um, so it's been on the agenda for a long time. We recognise the benefits of it for a long time, but I think what what this recent situation has done is just sort of nudged the game on a bit, really. It's probably pushed us a few years ahead into the future because we've sort of been forced to because we can't use public transport the way we'd like. We need to look for alternatives. So um, this sort of coronavirus situation has 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 actually, um, in an, act, an actual travel sense, been been a good thing, really. And I think we need to make sure we we continue to make the most of it. So as as we know, many many um, many towns across the the um, towns and cities across the country will see what we call a reallocation of road space. So it can be lanes closed off to allow for social distancing and for, for pedestrians and cyclists to, to be able to travel uh, more easily. Um, you know, that can be a lane closed off on a, on a dual carriage or going into central Birmingham, for example, but it could also be um, just change the way some of the streets are laid out in, in village centres. So do you think the, the coronavirus has, has helped speed up cleaner travel initiatives i know that you know in part we're moving away from trains but there's also this this great effort to get us uh, cycling and walking yes without any shadow of a doubt in, in terms of active travel I, I think that this is this has pushed us ahead a few years really i think in, interventions that you know just a couple of years ago would have been seen as unthinkable or undesirable um, or not supported by many of the populations such as reallocating road space away from the car to people that they can walk and cycle about, you know, to observe social distance initially, but also in the fullness of time to enable increased capacity so people can maintain those those travel choices. Um, and at a more kind of um, fundamental level as well, people are now questioning their need to travel. And in, in the, in the um, transport planning industry, we, we, we refer to this idea of travel planning where um, we, we try and reduce that need to travel and, and encourage more sort of sustainable travel behaviour. And, and I think in, in that sense, uh, this, this is sort of, re- this is leap forward probably 10 or 20 years really because we've, we've been forced to, which is, which, which is very interesting. So th- there's lots of positives there as well as obvious, the obvious negatives. There are some positives to take from this. So on a personal note, Tom, um, where do you see the future of of travel? Uh, do you see a return to public transport in the UK in years to come, especially with the likes of HS2 on the horizon? Or do you see the public sticking with more socially distanced options such as cycling, walking and travelling by car? I mean, I don't really see, assuming that the current COVID situation will, will go away at some point in the future and we get a vaccine, I don't really see how the you know, the benefits of public transport have gone away. You know, they, they haven't. They're still they're still there. Large public transport infrastructure projects such as high speed rail, HS2, but also the sort of Northern Powerhouse Rail as well, and Crossrail, and the metro systems in towns, and 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 development of you know reopening rail stations. The benefits of those schemes haven't gone away, assuming that the social distancing will will, will go away in the future. So. 
and unless sort of these pandemics become something we have a regular occurrence, then I don't really see how 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 those um, that future of transport will go away. Now, mass transit is still the most efficient way of moving large volumes of people. Um, the issues with the car won't go away. We'll push you know more towards electrification, maybe hydrogen power. Autonomous vehicles are, are, are still on on the horizon, and the technology that brings, and whether that's can make mean better mobility solutions, um, such as easier ride sharing and things like that. So, I don't necessarily think that the um, that much of the vision has changed that much. I just I just wonder whether we'll be we'll be travelling less, perhaps travelling for different reasons, and hopefully we'll be engaging in actual travel, walking and cycling far more than we would advise. Other done, particularly with the e-bikes that are, that are coming on and, and the e-scooters as well, which which are which are becoming a a, um, a big thing now. I think yeah, I think it, it's um, the future travel is very much for, for for us to decide really. Well, thank you very much for your expertise, Tom, and for coming onto the show. It's been a joy to speak to you and uh, for you to to rid some myths and to um, you know give us an insight into to what plans are moving forward. So thanks for coming on. To Absolutely, the podcast. it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Well, there you have it. So if you have a journey to make or if you're readying yourself for a return to the workplace, why not consider cycling or walking? Help reduce our carbon footprint and improve your fitness at the same time. And that's all we've got time for this week. A big thank you to our guests, Beth Gardner and Tom Millard. And if you want an update about our latest projects or would like to look back at some of our best work, or even a behind-the-scenes look at what goes into making our podcasts, you can sign up to our weekly newsletter by visiting laudable.substack.com. Alone Together has been a laudable production from the newsrooms of the Manchester Evening News, the Edinburgh Evening News, and Birmingham Live. You can keep in touch with Laudable, that's me, Dan, and Morvin, on social media, on Twitter, where we are at LaudablePods, or on Instagram, where we are Laudable underscore podcasts. Thank you to our guests and thank you for listening. So stay safe, stay positive, stay informed and stay tuned.